Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. God's power to transform anyone. Today we're going to look at the fact that righteousness, the righteousness meet righteousness. Um, and I, you know, we've been talking about Romans for the past few weeks, and I, if you've been here for a little while, then I'm sure you're like me and you're ready for some good news. And we've been talking about a lot of bad news. But this morning, we are going to see how the righteousness can obtain righteousness. In 1982, ABC Evening News, they reported about a brand new invention. It was a chair affixed to a shotgun. And it was to be viewed by what you were supposed to do is sit in the chair, and the gun barrel would be pointed right at your face. The gun was loaded and set on a timer to fire at an undetermined moment within the next 100 years. And so you could take five minutes, you were supposed to take five minutes in the chair. Um, The amazing thing was that people waited in lines, they said, to come and sit in the chair for five minutes and put their life in danger. They, they all knew it could go off at any moment. Here's the point of that. In much the same way, many people are gambling on their eternity right now. Every day that someone lives without taking care of the sin problem in their life, they are gambling. <clears throat> Some are gambling that there's no heaven in hell, like the college professor says. Some are gambling that their parents' religion will get them to heaven. My, my mom told me this, and so, you know, this has got to be true. Some are gambling that if they're a good enough person, that will get them into heaven. Some are gambling that going to church and confessing their sin to a priest will get them to heaven. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to really just spell out in great detail how people can stop gambling with their eternity. (laughs) Stop gambling and be saved for certain. Now to do that though, he starts with the bad news and he wants to help everybody understand and you really can't even grasp the good news until you fully embrace the bad news and that is that all men are sinners. This is the doctrine of depravity We went through that a little bit last week. I'll just review that real quick. All of us come into life, every human being. That's Paul's main point in the first few chapters here. Every man comes into the life, every woman comes into the life with a lack of moral righteousness. You have a lack of holy affection toward God. We have a complete corruption of our moral nature, who we really are. We have a bias toward evil. And really, we could say that mankind is unable to do enough to conform himself to the law of God. If you put together kind of all the scripture passages about depravity, those are the main uh, facts that you're going to find. Now, Paul has made this case in chapter 1, 
and he especially directed it toward the Gentile hedonists, the, those, the immoral, wicked Gentile world living however they wanted to and suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and living, living like the devil. And God said, and Paul said, you folks are depraved. You are bound for an eternity in hell. Chapter two, in the first part, he really attacked any moralist or a person that thinks they can get to heaven with their good deeds or their morals. And Paul attacked them and said, you are sinners. You are sinners and your good deeds cannot get you into heaven. And then at the end of chapter two and into chapter three, like we talked about last week, it was more especially focused on the legalist or the Jew who thinks that, who thought that or does think currently that by obedience to the Old Testament law, then God will let me into heaven. So again, before the good news could ever be given, he had to help everyone in the world understand that you are under the curse of sin, and that curse is going to take you into an eternity called hell. Now real quick, when, <clears throat> when you go on flying on a plane, you know, you're standing there in the plane before it starts, and they always do the little safety routine. And uh, <clears throat> you look around, and no one seems to be listening, you know. And, um, but I was thinking, imagine if the pilot during the flight comes on and says, uh, folks, <clears throat> uh, I hate to tell you this, but we are going down. And um, you might want to remember at this point everything you heard at the very beginning on the safety instructions. Now, at that moment... When we're in the middle of a situation, when the plane is going down and you think your life is at stake, everyone would wish they would have listened. When you're convinced that you could die, you are desperate for the solution. And that's what Paul has been trying to help everybody see. You, <coughs> he is like a flight attendant, <laughs> trying to get everybody to see that this plane is going down, your plane is going down, and you are going to die in your sins. And the, this, in this desperate situation, the only, uh, the only message you need to hear right now is the good news that Jesus can save you. Here's where we left off last week. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then, Paul says, are we, that is the Jews, better than they, the Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we have proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. So Paul says, I've proved it which is a legal term, it's used in the courts. I've proven that all men are sinners. And that now, just to pile on more evidence, to make it abundantly clear, in the next few verses, he is going to string together six Old Testament sources, mostly Isaiah and Psalms, and 14 different statements, these are 14 different passages of scripture, about the sin of mankind. Now, he's just rolling through these Old Testament passages here, and we're going to look at that. This, these are, this is called a charaz, or literally a stringing of pearls. Some have called it the most, well, we're about to look at the most explicit passage in the Bible describing the doctrine of depravity. Warren Wiersbe says, this passage is an x-ray study of the lost sinner from head to foot. And remember, this is a description of all unsaved people. He's going to describe their character, their conversation, and their conduct. Verse 10, here it is. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. 
People may seek idols, by the way, that suit their own way of life, <laughs> but in our natural state, we do not seek the one true God. He seeks us. Verse 12, they are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. Literally, that word unprofitable means uh, useless. Like rotten fruit is what they, how they would use that word. It's permanently bad. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher or a tomb, meaning they're full of deadness, nothing life-giving in their, in their mouths. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps, which is a dangerous snake, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. By the way, look at our murder rate today. Their feet are swift, and abortion. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Look around you, everybody. I mean, the, the <laughs> very few people know what peace is. The way of peace they have not known. Who knows peace? You look around. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And you know today, and I'm sure you would agree with me, that there's a serious lack of reverence for God right now. And Paul is looking at everybody. He said, I've proven both Jew and Gentile, this is how it is. The unsaved person, doesn't matter who you are, what background you come from, how good you think you are, God has made it clear in the word, in his word, where he stands and what's really going on. And that is that mankind is depraved. Every part of us, from head to toe, is corrupted. You know, there was someone who was in the funeral business <laughs> for more than 35 years, a believer, here's what he said. He said, I have seen what most people will never see. In my career, I have had just about every age, race, nationality, size, and religion represented on my coroner's table. When you cut them open and look inside, they all look the same. And let me assure you, it's never pretty. <laughs> Ivan Turgenev said, I do not know, listen to this, I, I think this summarizes it so well. I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it's terrible. <laughs> I don't care how good you think you are. The plane is going down. All men are going to die in their sins. Separated from God. There is no hope without God. As good as you think you are, it is hopeless without Jesus. And now Paul adds this to really hit home with the Jews especially in verse 19. Now, we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This is really to all people. And one of the purposes for God giving the law was that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This is why Paul has been saying all of these things in the previous chapters, that everybody would just stop their mouths. In other words, Mankind, you should just read everything Paul just said about all the uh, moral laws God gave, and here's the conclusion you should come up to. I agree, Lord, I am guilty, I have broken your law, I am a sinner. That's the only right response before God. Stop proclaiming your own goodness, in other words. Just shut up <laughs> and admit that you're guilty, that's what Paul's saying. It's, it's there so they would just stop their mouths, shut up, 
It's the only right response. Stop putting up a defense and saying, but I'm a good person, but I, I'm good at this, and I do this, and I help my fellow man, and I, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty, and that's, this is what you hear all the time when you go and ask somebody, uh, do you think that you're going to heaven? Yeah, I think I'm going to heaven. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I haven't killed anybody and, and things like that. And Paul says, listen, if you're looking at Scripture correctly, you will come to the conclusion that you are a sinner. Just admit it, stop your mouth, and just say, I can't make it to heaven on my own goodness. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So the Jews looked at God's law as something that could save them. If they could just list out every law that God gave and keep those laws, then God would let, let them in. And that's pretty simple, right? <laughs> but this is the message that Paul was trying to give loud and clear. The law of God was never intended to save anyone. That was not its original intent. That's not why God put it there. It's not, there's not some people getting saved in the Old Testament by keeping the law, and people in the New Testament are getting saved through Jesus. That's not how this works. The Jews were getting the cart before the horse here. That's, this is not the function of God's law. God's law was to give us the knowledge of sin. See, it helps us know what sin actually is. Now, not sin in our eyes, but sin in the eyes of God. See, actually, the, the giving of God's law is an aspect of God's grace. God doesn't leave us hanging here in this world. He doesn't just say, create us and say, all right, figure everything out yourself. No, by his grace, he gave us something that shows us moral goodness and moral badness. He gave us an understanding in his eyes of what is right and what is wrong, the knowledge of sin. It's God's loving confrontation. That's what the law is, a God's loving confrontation so that we won't ruin our lives. You know, having a beard has its advantages, <laughs> but it also has its disadvantages. <clears throat> One disadvantage to a beard, anybody that has a beard knows, that I can't feel food on my chin. If I'm eating and there's something there, I can't feel it. So my wife is the one who will tell me lovingly, you got something on your face. You got something going on there. She loving me, lovingly confronts me and tells me the ugly truth. So why? Why does she do that? So I can fix it. This is what the law of God does. It just lovingly confronts us with the truth. You have a problem. There's something on your face. The book of James in the Bible gives the example of God's law as a mirror. It shows us what's wrong with our face. See, living, imagine living your whole life without a mirror. Uh, there would be a lot of people who think they're fine when they're not. But, a, but here's the important piece of what Paul is saying. A mirror can't actually clean your face. The law has, gives us the knowledge of what's wrong. It give, the mirror is there. It shows us the problems. But the law is never intended to actually be the thing that cleans you up. The law can't save anybody. That's what it says in verse 20 there. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, 
There shall no flesh be justified in his sight. So now let's think about this. Paul has now presented this very huge dilemma. It's the dilemma of all dilemmas. It's mankind's largest and hugest and biggest dilemma. The plane is going down and you are powerless to stop it. All of our problems in this whole entire world pale in comparison to this one problem. Not one person, he's made the case and he's proven it. Not one person is righteous. No, not one. No one can save himself by doing good deeds. Then there's the fact that God is love and he doesn't want to send people to hell. He loves us. But he's also just and he must punish our sin. So we are powerless now. What what we're going to do, what we're going to see now is Paul in the book of Romans take a turning point. This is where Romans shifts. It's God's genius solution to mankind's greatest problem. The Bible teacher, teacher Donald Barnhouse, here's what he said about this passage that in Romans chapter three we're about to look at. He said, I in my Bible have drawn a heart around this passage because, quote, I am convinced today after these many years of Bible study that these verses are the most important in the Bible. This is one of the most clear descriptions of the miracle that God did to solve mankind's biggest problem, mankind's largest dilemma. Verse 21, but now, here's the turning point. This is where God butts in. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So Paul starts with what we need, righteousness. He says to get to heaven, we need 100% righteousness. But Paul, Paul has already proven that no one has that. And they can't get it through the ways most people think. The Jews thought, I can get it through strict obedience to the law. But that would only work if they were 100% perfect. But, and that's impossible. So Paul presents a different way of getting this righteousness. He says, this is the righteousness of God without the law or apart from the law and I'm manifesting it. Paul is revealing now this miraculous, supernatural righteousness that comes from God, it's of God. And this righteousness is without the law. So Paul, this is, had to be, you know, he's speaking here and I'm sure the Jews that might have been reading this, this would be a shocker to them. Paul says that this plan of salvation has been written in the law and the prophets, it's been there the whole time. Uh, most of the Jews just missed it. In verse 21, as he said there, it's witnessed by the law and the prophets. So Paul says, listen, I'm revealing this, I'm bringing it to the surface for you, but it's nothing new. And he'll explain that more in the next chapter, but, but look what he says in verse 22. This righteousness, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. So yes, this is the message that has been there the whole time. God's righteousness is given to you or and to me once we place our faith in Jesus Christ. This righteousness is by faith. That's it, that's simple. Paul doesn't make this complicated. 
You just put your faith in Jesus Christ and you get the righteousness of God. And notice it's unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. There's not one way to heaven for some and another way to heaven for other people. It's the same plan, there's no difference, it's the same plan of salvation for all people, Jew, Gentile, people in, the, in India, people here, no matter where you go in the world, it's the same plan. You know, some people like to say all the religions are climbing up different sides of the mountain, but they all end at God. And that's a, that's a very nice sounding way to you know, be, be loving toward people. It, it appears loving, but it's not really loving because it's not the truth. God says there is no difference. Uh, there is no difference. Righteousness is only by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not different for this person and different for, the, for this person. Every person has to put their faith in Christ. Then Jesus comes down the mountain and takes you up in his strength. That's how this works. We can't save ourselves by going up some other way. Why? Well, Paul reiterates, verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why that will not work. Say, I'm a really good person. I've tried to be really good. You need to stop saying that. Because, um, yes, I know, you've been good. But what about all the bad things you have done? How are we going to get rid of those things? I appreciate the goodness, and God wants us to be good. That's part of, the, uh, part of the law as well. It shows us what we ought to be doing. But, but all of us have to come to the place where we admit we come short of the glory of God. We went to Alcatraz a couple weeks ago. And I'm sure most of you have at least seen Alcatraz. Probably most have been there. You can see this island out there in the bay. And if you're standing, let's just imagine now you're standing on Pier 39. And you see Alcatraz over there and you say, I'd like to get to Alcatraz. So you know what? I don't, I, I don't want to pay the fee for this ferry here. I'm going to jump to Alcatraz. I'm just going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to run and I'm going to jump it and I'm going to make it. Now, if all of us tried to jump, all of us in this room tried to jump from Pier 39 all the way to Alcatraz Island, some of us would get a little bit further than others. <laughs> some would just kind of plop right off and some of us, you know, might get a few feet past that. But there is not one human being on the planet that could jump that entire distance. All of us would fall short. If the standard is Alcatraz, then all come short of the glory of Alcatraz. It doesn't matter if you can jump a little further than the next guy. Through our own abilities, we, we will never make it. And that's what this is saying. There has to be, for us to get there, there has to be something outside of ourselves. There has to be a righteousness that is beyond us, some supernatural righteousness that we can't attain on our own to be able to get to heaven. Where's this righteousness going to come from? There, we, we look around, we do the best we can, but what, what will give us the ability to actually make it to heaven? And Paul now tells us how God did this for us. Verse 24, here's how it works. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is an amazing verse, and there are three important words here, justified, grace, and redemption. We're gonna look at each one of them real quick. 
The first one, justified. Justified is a legal term that means you are declared innocent or declared righteous. Now, think of this. It does not mean you are made righteous. This word doesn't mean you're made righteous. It means you're declared righteous. See, the Greek word, which is translated to justify, diakion, all Greek verbs that end in uh, O-U-N like this uh, are not meant, do not make someone something, but it, rather to treat someone as something, or to reckon or to account someone as something. So if an innocent man appears before a judge and, and then the judge acquits him, then now the judge is going to treat him as innocent, even though he was perhaps guilty. But the point about the man's relationship to God is that man is completely guilty, and yet God, in his amazing mercy, treats him or reckons him or accounts him as if he were innocent. And that's what justification means. Just as if I'd justified, just as if I'd never sinned. It's not that we're innocent of the charges. We have committed the crime, the sin. But God the judge declares us innocent. Why would God do this? Why would God be willing to take somebody who is guilty and declare them innocent? And innocent and righteous enough to get to heaven. That's where this next word comes in. Grace. Grace. That's why. There's many definitions of grace. The character, or the Greek word, excuse me, is charis. And like many Greek words, the meaning changes slightly according to the context. And that word charis is used a lot in the New Testament in different forms and different ways. The common definition that we hear for uh, this saving grace, if you will, is undeserved favor. That's good, but I like this definition a little bit better by A.W. Tozier. Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. Grace is just the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. So we are justified freely, no cost to us, through his loving good pleasure, through God's loving good pleasure, Why? Because we're good? No, because he is good. But it did not, but it did cost him something. And that's what it says next in this verse. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what it cost him. The third word, redemption, there, it's a reference to slave markets. And in those days, in in the Bible days here, the New Testament days, when somebody was hopelessly in debt and they could not pay the debt, they would indenture themselves as a slave to someone so they could work off the debt. But if that master was a greedy master and he wanted some quick cash, he could take you to the slave market and sell you. And then he could get the cash. But if, if the slave is standing there in the slave market and a very kind, wealthy person came along and says, you know what, I'll purchase this person. If that person would buy you, and then he would free you, at that point, you would be considered redeemed. This word would come into play. You are purchased, and now not only are you purchased, but you're set free. It costs you nothing, but it costs him much. And that's the picture here that Paul is painting. 
This is the picture of our desperate situation here. We are slaves to sin. Sin has us bound and we are hopelessly caught. We cannot pay it ourselves. We cannot get out of it. We are unable to be free unless someone pays our debt and gets us out. And Jesus is the Redeemer who paid for us with his own blood. With his own blood. With his own life. And all of this, all of this is by grace. The good pleasure of God. Not because we are good, but because he is good. There's a beautiful illustration of this in a fairly recent story. On June 13, 2000, there was a deaf couple who stood before Judge Donald McDonough in Fairfax, Virginia. In the courtroom, they offered no rebuttal to the landlord's complaint that they were behind on the rent. Their recent marriage had unfortunately resulted in the loss of their disability benefits, and so they, they were not able to keep uh, a leased roof over their heads. They were not able to continue their lease. So they were $250 behind, and there's no hope to make up the deficit. And Judge McDonough, he saw the situation, and he couldn't disagree. The landlord was due the rent, and they, this couple was guilty of non-payment. Before he did anything, his compassion would not let him drop the gavel. So what he did, once the attorney, the plaintiff, for the plaintiff was done and closed the case, the judge left the courtroom, and a few minutes later, he returned with $250 in cash. He handed it to the landlord's attorney, and he said, consider it paid. With a transfer of funds now from the just to the unjust, the debt was paid, the case dismissed, the law had been satisfied, the defendants were now just or righteous in the eyes of the court. Simply because God loves you, he had compassion on us, and he redeemed us. He did for me and you what we couldn't do for ourselves. Do you love him this morning? <laughs> do you love Jesus? But how was this transaction made? How did Jesus pay the price? Verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now, most likely, this is a word that you didn't use at your work or home this week, propitiation. I'm just counting on that. But it is a key term in how Jesus purchased us from the slave market. What is propitiation? It's the Greek word, helasterion. We have no direct English translation. And propitiation, I mean, that's like foreign word to us. Okay, okay propitiation, what in the world does that even mean? The Greek word is closely related to the Hebrew word kippurim, where the Jews get their name of their holiday, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. So we could say that this is the atonement sacrifice, but it's more than that. The word means a satisfaction, appeasement of wrath. So in the Old Testament, God commanded that the high priest once a year was to bring two goats before the congregation bring two goats before everybody, and uh, cast the lots. And whichever lot, the rolling of the dice basically, if whichever one it fell on, that particular goat now would be uh, killed. He would be sacrificed as a sin offering for the people of all the whole nation. The other goat was called the scapegoat. And the priest would put his hands on that goat, 
And by doing that, he would transfer the sins of the nation onto that goat, and the goat would be allowed to run off into the wilderness and escape. And that was the picture that our sins would be gone forever. <clears throat> but this other goat they would take, sacrifice, and the blood of that dead goat, that dead goat would be taken into the Holy of Holies, the place where the high priest would only go into once a year. And he would take that blood and he would sprinkle it on the altar. On top of the altar there, which is the Ark of the Covenant, and the, on top of the altar was a thing called the mercy seat in the Old Testament. And that is where we get that word for in the Old Testament. The mercy seat is translated in the Greek Old Testament as hilasterion, this propitiation. So we see the connection here. Paul is saying that what happened on that day that Jesus died on the cross, on the crucifixion, that moment was the moment where God, or Jesus, put the blood on the mercy seat. Once and for all. He was the sacrificial uh, animal. That would t his blood would be shed. And by that act, he was satisfying God's wrath against sin. Through the blood of Jesus, not the blood of a goat. Jesus took the wrath of God on himself, and it would be turned away from you and from me. Do you love him? Remember that song, and I love this verse, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in, that on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. This is what Jesus did. He spilled his blood. In the second half of verse 25, though, it describes that this sacrifice also did something else. It cleared up the confusion about sins in the past, Paul says, in the Old Testament days. Some may have accused God of just letting all this wickedness go for all this, all this time and not justly punishing sins. But in Jesus, Paul is saying God is pouring out uh, his judgment on sins. Let no one say that God remisses or just passes over sins. No, uh, he, is, he is not unjust. He judged sins in Jesus. In fact, Paul clarifies that in the next verse, verse 26. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. So God doesn't just pass over sin. On the contrary, he is righteous and therefore he judged sin on the cross. But at the same time, he was also able to justify the sinner. See, this is why the cross is the genius solution to the sin problem. God remains just and, and he doesn't condone sin. In fact, he shows how bad sin is. He, he, uh, he allows his son to die on the cross. He punishes sin in Jesus. But simultaneously, while he's doing that, he also is justifying the sinner by taking the sins. Do you love him? <laughs> and this, is, this justification is given because to anyone who believes in Jesus, it says. And faith is the key that unlocks the justification. And faith is simply accepting the gift. I wish I had time to tell a story. <laughs> Delivery is not completed without the acceptance. Now, the justifier, verse 26 says that he is the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. And then verse 27, where is boasting then? You know, the offer is there. The offer has been paid for. All we must do is believe and accept what Jesus has done. 
And if you've done this, then this morning you are gloriously, miraculously saved. And you have a home in heaven. If you've accepted this gift, that's what it said in the previous verse, he is the justifier of those who believe. You have a supernatural righteousness that had been placed in your account that you did not get from earning it. And so in verse 27 we say, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Boasting is impossible. You can only boast if you did something or I did something to earn my salvation. But true salvation, true righteousness comes from outside of us. It's impossible for us to get to the glory of God without it. So he is the initiator, he is the completer, and anyone who struggles with, and all we do here is just accept the gift through faith. Faith is just simply holding out your arms and saying, thank you, I accept. Anyone who struggles this morning with doubt about their salvation, whether God loves them, or whether God could save them, here's what I would suggest. I would suggest you get a pen out like Donald Barnhouse and draw a heart around these verses right here. And just say, put these ver- verses in the back pocket of your mind and have them ready when all those fearful thoughts come to you. I wonder if I'm saved. I wonder if God loves me. Go to these verses right here. In fact, it's a great thing for anybody to do. Have a verse that's so ingrained in your head, maybe just one of these. Have a verse so ingrained in your head about the salvation that Christ has given that any, any moment you could just pull it into your memory pull it into your memory, pull it to the forefront of your mind, and so that you know that you are a born-again child of God based on what God says right here in his word. If anyone were to ask you, think about this, if anyone were to ask you, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you are born again? We should be able to bring a verse right to mind, say, based on this, Based on what God has said, maybe it's even as simple as John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I've done that. And I know based on what he has said, I am a born again child of God. I am justified, I am redeemed, and I am a saved child of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.